Chocolate. 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 From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Before we officially begin season three of the show, I want to thank everyone who's been listening and sending messages and sitting with me for interviews. Getting these stories out is why I do what I do. For all of the time, effort, and money I put into the show, all I ask is that you share it with fellow chocolate lovers. And please, please, please take 30 seconds to leave five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you think the show is anything less than five star worthy, I'd love to hear from you please send me a message. I'll leave my email address and a link to review in the description. Now on to the episode. Malaysia doesn't have much presence on the global chocolate scene, despite its very long history with cocoa cultivation. This is due to a combination of factors, which we'll get into a bit later. But First of all, where is Malaysia? On the map, you'll find two parts to the country, East and West Malaysia. Western Malaysia, or Peninsular Malaysia, is attached to continental Southeast Asia, near Thailand and Indonesia. Malaysian Borneo, in the east, is in the northern portion of the island of Borneo, directly below the Philippines. After over a hundred years of British rule, the country of just 31 million people became independent in 1957. Cocoa was brought to Malaysia, surprise surprise, by the British. They brought specimen from existing plantations on Sri Lanka, then called Ceylon. The first seeds were brought in 1770. Here's my source at the Malaysian Cocoa Board, who would rather not be named. Cacao in Malaysia, growing by the British, yeah? British uh, from Ceylon or Sri Lanka at that time. They bring it here because of the uh, the demand. In 1770, the first cocoa tree was introduced in Malaysia. It was fruiting in, in the garden in Malacca in 1778. Where is Malacca? Malacca is in, in Peninsula Malaysia. So it's a historical uh, city now where the Portugal and Dutch invented that area at that time. They built up yeah, the so, city. Yeah, they built up the city and then there's some uh, war, takeover, and uh, so it's a historical uh, city in Malaysia. The first Malaysian cocoa trees were recorded in 1778 in Malacca. Malacca is a historical town a couple hours south of Kuala Lumpur, the Malaysian capital. But uh, the production of cocoa was disrupted in uh, during the World War Two, and by end of the world, stock was uh, reduced very much, and the world production stayed some recovery after 1948. But supply was still about 10 percent less than before World War. And the record in uh, Europe uh, pushed demand skyward and inflated cocoa price to record. After a steady climb to be one of the world's top cocoa producers, World War II stopped everything. While production bounced back post-war, Malaysia's cocoa industry shifted focus towards processing rather than growing cocoa. What did Malaysian 
cacao production looked like before then, from 1770 to mm. World War Two, was it very low production or very uh, high? They, they, they just started actually, so the demand from the grinder uh, started from there. Mm. Yeah, so but... From uh, the 1940s, the processing demand? Yes, grew. the processing demand and then uh, it's one of the most uh, lucrative uh, commodity culture at, at that time. So. Is most of the cacao from Malaysia grown on Borneo or on peninsular Malaysia? At that time, Sabah is uh, one of the center of the production of cacao. How about right now? Is most Malaysian cacao grown on Borneo or on peninsular Malaysia? More in Borneo. So right now, here on, on Borneo, what crops is cacao competing against? Normally, uh, farmers, they will see the leader. Who is the leader in that industry? When the trend of planting palm oil come, then they also follow the leader, the estate. But now, uh, the new one is they start chopping down the cocoa, then they're planting uh, durian. So that's a threat to the industry in terms of uh, upstream. On both Borneo and peninsular Malaysia, durian and oil palm are competing with cocoa for the same land. Right now, commodity prices for cocoa can't compete. So the Cocoa Board is seeking other ways to increase farmer income. So what kind of work does the Malaysian Cocoa Board do to support the farmers? We do some uh, transfer technology mm. to the farmers. We teach them how fruits of the cacao can produce better in terms of quality, in terms of uh, quantity, with help with the private sector. We work together with them. So we try to encourage uh, farmers to have a farm-to-table concept. They can participate in the producing in every value chains in the farm-to-table concept. So from there, farmers can have uh, more income in terms of price. They can get better price than ordinary productions of cacao. Do most cacao farmers have a mobile phone? Do they have access to internet? Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the um, media that we can transfer technology. Mm-hmm. For example, on how to fertilize, how to do fertilizing mm-hmm. of cacao. From our center here, we do some short video on how to do it. And then we circulate it to the group of farmers. You know, in Sabah, for example, there's a group of farmers. So every farmers, they have group like about 20 to 50. They communicate each other through handphone. Uh, if they wanted to uh, have a meeting, they just call up and then if uh, our officer would like to do some uh, transport technology activities, the extension activities, they just communicate with the leader. The leader will circulate the message and then they will uh, meet some way in the farm, for example, then they, they do some. The messaging application, WhatsApp, has become a big part of Malaysian farmers' lives. WhatsApp groups larger than 100 members are headed by a regional leader who knows each member by name. The leader becomes the regional contact with the cocoa board, making requests on the group's behalf. All farmers with a phone have access to pricing information and upcoming workshops. But this method has allowed farmers to tell the board what they need. Someone at the head of one of these groups is Rustam Baka. My name is Rustam Baka. I'm from Keningam. Yeah. What do you do? Uh, saya petani koko. Uh, I'm a farmer. 
Koko dan saya is also a buyer for cocoa beans from all the farmers around Keningau and he has his own nursery supplying seedlings to farms. I am Josephine from Jaws Claws Chocolate. I'm a chocolate maker, been to bar maker. Rustam works with Josephine to supply high-quality cacao from his farmer group. That group now has 128 members on WhatsApp. After going with the two of them to three of the cocoa farms Rustam and his team are managing, we sat down on the farm for an interview. Josephine translated for Russ most of the time, but I tried to make it clear whom she was speaking for. Please ignore any animal noises. How did you learn about cacao farming? When he was a small kid, he's actually an orphan. Um, so he was brought up by his uncle. So when he was staying with his uncle, his uncle taught him to grow cocoa trees from the beans itself. So they would dig into the ground and they would stick the beans into the ground and grow it through that way. So it's the first language that he ever learned. The terms that is that grow this cocoa because it is your source of income. It will enable you to go to school and make a living. So from those words that his uncle said to him, he remembered and gave him the strength to really concentrate on learning cocoa growing. From then onwards, he, he did it religiously and he is thankful that he was able to meet up with me. We are divided into two sections. He would be at the beginning, I would be the, at the end, I would be the one doing the chocolates, he would be the one producing the cocos. So there is a Malay proverb of, of uh, Hulur and Hilir, it means the beginning of the river and the end of the river. Hulu and Hilir, say in Malay, Hulu and Hilir. We're beginning in the land and the last, from palm to table, it is Hulu ah, and Hilir. Ah, palm to table. Favel, wow. Palm to table. It is uh, in Malaysia, in Malay, uh, Hulu and Hilir. Upstream and downstream. Uh. So there is an up, there is a down. Mm. So mm. he would start and I would end it. It's not clear who translated this concept into Malay. But the idea of farm-to-table has been pushed hard by the cocoa board. This is similar to the Philippine government's push to grow more fine flavor cacao. You can hear more about that in episode 11 of this podcast. The difference in Malaysia is that the government wants cocoa farmers to be more in partnership with chocolate makers. They want to have the complete cycle of chocolate making, rather than just a higher value export. But wanting something doesn't mean you get it. Once you produce that high-quality chocolate, it doesn't immediately bring consumers rushing to buy it. What do Malaysians think of cacao and chocolate? Is there any kind of connection to it, just regular Malaysian citizens? You'd be surprised that they have no idea where chocolate came from. The chocolate that they have always seen is a bar of chocolate in a shop, and that's all that chocolate is to them, unless they've grown up in a village where they grow cocoa. Um, from my experience, from meeting, <laughs> from meeting a lot of people, when they ask me where does it come from, I show them pictures of a cocoa pot up to fruits and up to the dried beans. 
and then to the chocolate liquor up to the bars they are all amazed to them chocolate is always that color and and when you show them the fruit it's white the pulp is white doesn't mean anything to farmers that the cacao that is being used now for making Josephine's chocolate is from Malaysia apakah perasaan sama chocolate cita rasa khas daripada Jason Claus they are proud to know that the crops that they have grown, the cocoa fruit, would then be produced into beans and into chocolates, specialty handmade chocolates. They are proud of it. And he said something about when they try the bars. Oh, yeah, okay. And when they get to try the chocolates made from their beans, they, they are amazed that this is what they get from their beans. Because all this while they are producing beans and they're selling it off to whoever, they have no idea. Now they get to meet the maker of the chocolates, they know where their beans are and who is getting to taste. So it's it's their pride. They feel that uh, for the cocoa of Kaningao, they just feel that they have achieved something. Right now, Josephine and Rustam's partnership is not a common one, and not an easy one, but it is one they're both very excited to have. It's taken effort to convince regional farmers to stick with cocoa, and for very good reason. Why are they cutting down the cocoa right now? Kenapa cocoa tidak ditanam lagi? Apakah sebab cocoa Sabah dulu terkenal, Malaysia dulu pada amnya terkenal dengan cocoa. Well, Malaysia used to be really famous for cocoa in the 80s and 90s, and we had many, many farmers doing cocoa. But then at one point, the trees were infected by a pest called CPB, and uh, it affected production of the cocoa and hardened the fruit, and people were discouraged, and they start chopping down the trees until nobody wants to grow it anymore. Then it was replaced by sawit. Kilang kilang coklat saya di Tawau ganti dia punya kebun dengan sawit Tekguan. Tekguan used to be a very big uh, chocolate manufacturer in Sabah, quite famous, and um, they chop down all the trees and replace it with palm oil because it's giving them a better income. In recent decades, CPB or cocoa pod borer has been a big problem for Asia and the South Pacific. Relative to the maintenance needed for cocoa, oil palm seems very appealing. Cocoa is a tough industry to be in, whether you're upstream or downstream. What have been your main challenges of building your business in Kotkinaburu or in Kanengao in your case? Apakah kesusahan atau... Sekarang ini yang paling... Okay, to sell the beans is not a challenge. It's to increase the productivity and the production of the beans and to get the heart of the farmers, to convince them to increase their production. This is the challenges that we face daily. The most challenging crop to be doing is cocoa. For me, it is to educate people on the differences between bean to bar and commercial chocolates. I feel that the people here, community here, does not really know about bean to bar and the benefits and what's the difference, why the price differences. 
this is one of the first few hurdles that I have to overcome. To get really good beans, uh, it is my dream, but we are in the middle, we are getting there. We ourselves, we are doing our own fermentary. Uh, we will be fermenting our own beans. We hope to create better chocolates. In a country with so much cacao growing, it seems like you could find farmers to work with quite easily. You just wander around talking to farmers, right? Well, wrong. Getting high-quality cocoa beans consistently is a big problem for Malaysian chocolate makers. For the chocolate side of things, working with the farmers is basically a prerequisite to high quality. There's just not strong history of proper processing in Malaysia, leading to inconsistent flavor in the cacao and in the final chocolate. Eddie Kim is another one of those chocolate makers working with farmers on consistent processing. I already live in here in Sabah Borneo 10 years. And then during the nine years, I work with some local farmers together. And then last year, I start my own business with my partner in Korea. So now using the local cocoa, produce the bean to bar chocolate. And then now we are starting to export to Korea also. Over the last decade, Eddie's been working in the cocoa industry on Borneo. But he's also working to bring Malaysian chocolate to other parts of the world, including his home country of South Korea. You may actually recognize Eddie's voice if you listen to episode 12 of this podcast, focused on Korea. Eddie's just opened a chocolate factory back there, with the same name as his factory in Borneo, Bonaterra Chocolate. And in a way, its very existence is proof that Malaysian cocoa is on the rise, because a lot has changed over the last decade. So compared to 10 years ago, mm -hmm. how has your work changed with local farmers and with chocolate making? When we work together with the local farmers, means provide our technique to growing cocoa and then harvesting, pruning, grafting, and then fermentation, also, you know, the drying. That's our main work with the local farmers. But now, you know, everything was changing. Now I just purchased the bean from them directly. So already, you know, the, we are very close to each other and I know their ability, how they work. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's more easy to purchase the bean from them because I already know, you know, that their quality of the beans. Compared to the last 10 years, now I think much improved, not just only chocolate, but also the farmer's ability and then their skill also much improved. Have you found it to be a similar experience to get to know local farmers around Kota Kinabalu versus in Tawau? Yeah, actually almost the same. 30 years ago in Sabah, Malaysia, one of the major cocoa production areas in the world. Malaysia was a number 11 cocoa production country, but now less than 1%. Only 4,000 ton a year. That is official. Wow. Yeah, but that means less than Vietnam. That means most of the big farm, there is no more. Only small farm just remains. So there is another big challenge to us, because the local farmers, they need the money, the frankly. But only growing the cocoa cannot make money. Part of the way cocoa farmers can earn better income in Malaysia is by cutting out the middlemen. But this calls for structural change in the way cocoa is traded in the country. And this has to start on an individual level, because middlemen certainly won't cut themselves out. 
So compared to the chocolate and cacao company you worked for in Tawau, mm -hmm. how are you structuring your business mm -hmm. differently to focus more on this local community? Well, actually, you know, the most of the big company is the same. When I was in the Tawau in the other chocolate factory, that is uh, connected with uh, some middlemen. Yeah, always this is the same problem in all over the world. The middlemen can control everything. They purchase the bean from the local farmers very cheap price because local farmers have no any information about the cocoa price or everything. So after then, when they purchase the bean from the local farmers, they sell to the big company as a high price because they have a license. Middlemen, they have a trading license and an exporting license, but the farmers they don't have. There is a really, really total difference. So only small amount of the middlemen they have. So even the middlemen also divided local middlemen and then exporting middlemen also. There are so many steps. So for example, in, when you receive the cocoa in Korea, normally six or seven US dollar per kilogram. Can you believe it? Yeah. It'd be great if the farmers were actually getting paid that much. Yeah. For example, the actual local price of the farm less than two US dollar. That's a real price. Yeah. So how can we overcome this situation? Still, I'm struggling about that because here also we have many middlemen. But uh, slowly, slowly we provide some more information to the local farmers. And then, luckily in Malaysia, the government organization is well organized. Mm. So, compared to other country, this country is a more bright future. How do you think Bonaterra will be different in five years or in ten years? Well, I'm not a fortune teller. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you hope your business will be different? If, if all goes well... You know the Maro chocolate in Vietnam. So because of that, in Vietnam, all of the other country chocolate maker, they wanted to purchase the Vietnamese bean. And then because of them, Vietnamese cocoa is really famous in the world. Same. We wanted to become some representatives of the Asian cocoa. So for example like this, South America also became a rich and then some places are more well business. They chop down the cocoa always. Myanmar and then Laos or Cambodia, they are starting to grow in cocoa because already Vietnam, Philippines, the price of the labor charges are starting to increase. So cocoa always go to more cheaper place. Because of them, our company should be some good standard or good example for the high quality cocoa and then high price to benefit to the local farmers. Other than Taiwan, Malaysia is the richest cocoa-producing nation in Asia. Average income in Malaysia is more than double neighboring Indonesia and the Philippines. But the cocoa prices are the same. No wonder cultivation is decreasing. And it's decreasing on both Borneo and the peninsula. But till now, we've only heard from people on Malaysian Borneo. So let's head over to the peninsula, a quick three-hour flight from Kota Kinabalu. Arriving in Kuala Lumpur, you immediately see miles of oil palm trees in every direction. It's staggering. 
Much of this land used to contain cocoa trees, though they've been cleared. But you can still find cocoa growing across the peninsula. Remember, the first cacao trees in Malaysia were just a hundred miles south of the city, in the town of Malacca. You don't even have to go that far to find a cacao plantation. There are some plots of cocoa just 30 or 40 minutes outside of the city, some of which are managed by Ning Gang Ong, founder of Chocolate Concierge. Ning returned to his home country of Malaysia over a decade ago, and he found himself fascinated by cacao, and in turn by chocolate. I caught up with Ning in a local bar to get his perspective on how things have changed over the last 10 years. So could you tell me more about the cacao supply in Malaysia, how it, maybe it's changed or shifted over the last 10 years? Well, initially, as a proof of concept, um, and in fact, the first question that I asked wasn't that if I could make a Malaysian chocolate. The first question I asked was if I could taste one. And so I went around trying to find someone who actually made it and filling which I thought, okay, roll up my sleeves and yeah. if I could find beans now and just no one was making sure there were chocolate makers in malaysia but they weren't using exclusively malaysian beans they were were importing beans they were importing liquor from indonesia um, africa malaysia at the time was uh, in the top five in terms of volume of liquor produced in the world yes yes this was because malaysia had a lot of excess capacity from the time that we were producing a lot. Had we kept up with those numbers today, Malaysia would have placed top 10 in terms of volume of cacao produced. But it hasn't. It's gone down. It's, it's declined a lot <laughs> over the years. How would you describe Malaysian farmers as a whole? Do they catch on to trends quickly? Are they more creative and experimental? The Malaysian farmer that I first made a bar out of. In fact, the first few batches I made were from cacao that were planted around where I live. Mm. So that was the first bars. But beyond that, when I wanted to scale, I bought beans from farmers and some of the batches were really good, were stellar. And then when I placed an order, I got something totally different. Mm. And after a couple of those, I decided that I have nothing to stand on. I have not a foundation from which to build on and that I really needed to control the fermentation process. And that's how I started to look for and and run a farm. If the farmers I worked with at the time could produce for me a, and I don't mean consistency in flavor, but just a consistency in how much, how well fermented the beans are. If that problem was solved then, I don't think today I would be a grower myself. So would you say that the fermentation issue is consistently a problem? Is it that they're just taking the beans out of the pots and drying them immediately? Or are they attempting fermentation at all? Well, let's start from one step up on how who are the farmers selling to currently. The farmers are selling to collection centers that are then supplying liquor makers and grinders. And a lot of the beans that are produced here goes into powder, liquor, and butter. So to that end, they are not incentivized to ferment it particularly well because it's going to be blended anyway and a lot of it might just end up being alkalized and pressed for butter. 
So they're not paid more if they did it differently. But are they expected to ferment at all? So fermentation is practical and a necessity for drying. So how they do it is nine out of ten growers that I talk to, the modus operandi is to leave the beans freshly out of the pot into a bag and this could be a rice bag or or a fertilizer bag <laughs> and that bag is left in the sun or on tarmac or on cement floor for three days without a turn just so that the mucilage or the sugar um rots <laughs> let's put it that way maybe not maybe ferment but it, it, not most kind of not desirable not the not the best desirable fermentation yeah. and then it's dried because trying to dry with all that mucilage and sugar and pectin is not very efficient and it's better of if it's if something eats it first this was the type of cacao that ning was dealing with when he first started making chocolate so he decided to fix the problems himself He's been fermenting his own cacao since then, expanding the operation to now work with 16 farms in several distinct cacao origins. He's supplying cacao to about a dozen other chocolate makers. But what struck me about Ning is his perspective on partnership. He works with other local cacao farmers, of course, but he also works with the land, rather than just on it. The way he approaches farming strikes me as the future for cacao growing in increasingly wealthy countries. Respect the past and plan for the future. Malaysia has a cultivation history of cacao for almost 250 years. And it has naturalized. It's, it, it means that we could walk into the jungle and if you could identify cacao, you would see that you could identify some trees in the wild. And I imagine only because the civet cats, the bats, the squirrels, the tree shrews love the fruit. And they grow readily without much tending to. And there's this patch in the Forest Research Institute of Malaysia where there are trees that are really age old. Um, the bowls, the trunks have fallen over, but the trees have survived. And you could see if you brave the leeches, cacao trees in Malaysia in the wild. But in, in, in most of the indigenous communities we work with, cacao is planted into the wild at the fringes of the jungle in a, in a way that is agroforestry because it's not in rows and it's in extreme biodiversity. You can stand at one tree and look around and not see another tree. And you have to take 20, 30 steps, walk half a minute, to see another tree and then along the path you might see two more and in this scenario I've observed that cacao can be grown in a region that is rife with pests and diseases without a pesticide or fungicide intervention in this scenario in an agroforestry and so it's something that we want to pursue at our own plot so therefore in 2019 this year we're increasing the biodiversity at our own farm to a one-to-one -one ratio. So it's not as diverse as it is what we observe, but it's a, still a huge improvement over a monocropping or a dual cropping. So what kinds of trees are you planting on the plots? We are planting some 600 
species within a thousand trees, and a lot of and most of them are indigenous. Some are threatened critically within Malaysia. A lot of dipterocarps, which is found here, um, and a lot of uh, ethnobotanic um, species that the culinary scene in Malaysia are starting to appreciate. So. We hope to be able to supply some of these unusual ingredients for a time when the chefs are looking for it. What do you think has had the biggest impact upon Malaysian chocolate and cacao culture? Because unlike other cocoa-growing countries I've been to, there's so many chocolate shops that just have tons of the same prepackaged basically compound chocolate like palm oil or vegetable oil with sugar like what do you think has influenced that Malaysians seem to be proud of growing so much cocoa but they use so little of it in their chocolate that's a mystery that that's a mystery from the start for me and I and I saw an arbitrage opportunity I saw that Malaysians love their chocolate and I saw that Malaysia grew cacao and it never I never understood why no one Bridge that gap, but actually now I do. It's because the chocolate so that fun. the chocolate that we want to make that we we think is, I mean, I certainly want to make a chocolate that I would enjoy, and to do that is not easy with at the time the the type of cacao that was available for makers in Malaysia. So, what are the most popular chocolate type products in Malaysia? All kind of confectionery, the and then there's Milo, which is yeah, which is a cocoa drink. Malted that's right. Drink. Yes, that's it. And is it any different between the urban and more rural areas, like KL versus outside of KL? I'm not sure. Like when you talk to the farmers, do they consume chocolate at all in any form? It depends.、Um, the more rural farmers, growers that we work with, and I really mean out of town rural,、um, no, they they don't consume a chocolate product at all. Do they consume the outside? The oh yeah, they、so、do.、Much? Yes, they do. Yeah, the kids do, and the adults do. Getting a sense of the type of chocolates Malaysians are eating is quite simple, really. There are endless chocolate shops selling bars with the same ingredients: sugar, vegetable fat, milk, cocoa powder, emulsifier, and flavorings. Rinse and repeat. But beyond imported Cadbury bars and Australian Milo, even these compound chocolates don't make it far outside of the cities. Rustam, our farmer from Borneo, only tried Milo for the first time at thirteen. The only chocolate he eats is what Josephine brings him. In Malaysia, farmers know cocoa as a fruit, and city folk know it as an ingredient. But Malaysia has the world's fourth largest germoplasm bank of cacao. Every farm I visited there had several types of cacao. Most farmers grow at least six varietals, especially after what happened with pests. But farmers still aren't getting the prices they need to live off of cocoa. What are the biggest issues that Malaysian chocolate makers and then Malaysian farmers are running into these days? Well, I think for the grower, pricing is a big challenge. That's why a lot of growers have switched from growing cacao to other crops, because I certainly cannot appreciate that. Because where I operate, 
used to be a major cacao producing region in Pahang. Mm -hmm. And everyone else, all my neighboring plots have been converted to durian and further out palm oil. Because hectare to hectare, the monetary reward for growing cacao is very low if cacao is sold as a commodity. So the only way for it for growers in this region is to do the fermentation well so that they can get a, a, a premium on their beans. And that's what I'm advocating growers to consider, to grow it well um, and to ferment it and to handle post-harvesting well so that they are not pressed to sell at a commodity price because the Malaysian grower cannot survive at prices that are coming out of Africa. The living standards are different. Labor cost is different. What is the price difference between the Malaysian commodity price and the Malaysian premium or fine flavor price? And I have to qualify this by first saying that the farmer doesn't necessarily sell or get the price that's advertised because the cocoa board has a, they announce the price that's collected in KK and Tawau and a price that's collected in Sarawak and also Peninsula. And a lot of growers may not even have that price because they rely, especially indigenous growers, they rely on a middleman to collect from the village, drive it to the collection center and make a profit from that process. Mm -hmm. But what's advertised is today way under $2 per, per kilo. kilo. I'm going to give you a per ton equivalence if you just... The equivalent of per ton right now is $1,680 a ton. It's what the collection center is offering. And the collection center is the final destination where it's all like processed somehow and so there's still a middleman before who needs No, to the collection collect. center is not the is not the processor. The collection center it's still before the is still before the processor. And there's still a middleman before the collection center. Sometimes one or two. Yeah. Yes. Malaysian chocolate makers can only do so much though they certainly have big dreams. And so do their farmer partners, which is how we should see cocoa farmers, as business partners. They're business owners, after all, with their own big dreams and goals. All they lack, often, is market access. But in Malaysia, some farmers are finding their partners. They're upstream, if you will. It's finally giving them a seat at the metaphorical table, and a way to make some of those dreams into a reality. Here's Rustam and Josephine, speaking from Borneo one more time. What changes and progress do you hope to see happening in Kanungao, on Borneo, in the cacao industry and in the chocolate industry over the next five years, ten years? Dalam jangka masa lima tahun ke depan atau sepuluh tahun? Ya, itu saya punya impian. Saya punya impian, saya target. That's a big dream, okay. He set up a group. It's called Gerakan Tanaman Koko. Gerta, short for that. It's been three years old. So his plans for the first ten years, so he still has seven years going on. So he wishes that Keningau be known as the biggest cocoa-producing state in in the whole of Malaysia. 
So it is like Denham is known for coffee, and Ranau is known for tea. He hopes that one day Kaninga would be known for chocolates, and there will be a chocolate factory in Kaninga itself. So he feels that this dream, all this while, it's been dormant, but it has finally been awakened. And through this dream, we don't need to be giants, but we are small entrepreneurs who will make a difference in this industry. Right now. There are hundreds of farmers in several distinct parts of Malaysia, all working towards high-quality cacao. If you're interested in buying Malaysian cacao, it's coming to an importer near you, or feel free to contact Josephine or Ning about buying. But for the non-chocolate makers among us, I hope to very soon see more Malaysian craft chocolate on the shelves, at home and on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. And especially huge thank you to Eddie, Josephine, Rustam, and Ning for being in this episode. To learn more about our guests and the Malaysian Cocoa Board, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.